intercom. Yeah, wait if a you're comfortable talking about it. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, is it? Is there a comparison? I don't. I mean, like the way I think about it is broadly. I don't think about competitors. That's my religion. I think about the customer. You know, I love the Bezos quote: "If we stay close to the customer and we we keep our competitors focused on us, then we will win." From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on today's show, how David Cancel went from building the precursors to Facebook, Threadless, and modern blogging to helping HubSpot and Drift reach hypergrowth through customer-centric product. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode for how you can get in on this week's book giveaway. Whoever gets closest to the customer wins. This notion was actually popularized by a brilliant marketer out of Australia named Bernadette Jiwa. And it could not be truer today, mainly because we're seeing this shift in so many different products basically take over based on getting closer to the customer. You have Airbnb that not only from an experience perspective and a design perspective has basically brought Hilton and other hotel chains basically to their knees. Uber's simplicity and focus allowed it to physically get closer to the customer. Netflix not only physically got closer to the customer using the online model versus Blockbuster, but also their algorithms basically personalized and got closer to the experience of the customer, basically getting the content that they really want to watch. Amazon's proximity, speed, efficiency got it closer to the customer as well and beating out bookstores like Borders and other brick and mortar places. Yep, and the list goes on. And it, it looks like there's two elements to these shifts. There's kind of a technological or physical element where it involves actually getting physically closer or kind of bringing the product to the customer. So kind of shortening that A to B. And then the other element seems to be something along the lines of actually experiential or the customer mindset. So basically getting your product into an element that more closely aligns to the customer's wants and needs. Exactly. And it seems somewhat easier to understand a technological shift than a mindset shift. I think that's right, or you would think that would be right, but then you think about Amazon and Netflix where the ability to basically order something online and get it delivered to you at scale and the ability to you know get you that DVD in the early days or that actual piece of content in a streaming way and it's personalized to the point that you're going to get out of your current pattern, the technology behind that has to be just out of control. Right, right, right. I, I didn't say easy, I meant easier. Well, sure, sure, of course. But what's kind of interesting is that I don't think anyone personifies this whole concept of shift and in taking advantage of a shift in the market, like our guest today, David Cancel. Right. He's an OG of software. I mean, he's got his career started out in New York when he made predecessors to MySpace and Facebook with Bolt.com. And then he led a product at HubSpot. Most recently, he left HubSpot to start Drift.com, which is the new way that businesses buy from businesses and is essentially at the forefront of this shift into what's called conversational marketing, which is essentially, and I'm going to maybe butcher this according to some of the folks who are in this space, this whole shift from needing to talk to a salesperson, needing to go through very big forms and things like that to simply being able to message in or live chat in and get what you need from a customer perspective. Yeah, and that space is heated up by going head-to-head with Intercom and his old friends at HubSpot. As well as Zendesk and GoSquared and uh, Salesforce and just a whole host of other companies that are in this space. 
But before we get into kind of what's happening in the space and the competition that David faces, which he's going to talk about in a bit, I think it's really important to get a little bit of background on all of the shifts that have taken place in his career, particularly when it comes to basically building a lot of the predecessors of the products that we use today. I got a, a VIC-20 when I was young, which is an old computer, yeah. learned BASIC, yeah. uh, and then kind of got obsessed with that, building games in BASIC, right? Sure. They're very simple logic games. What's BASIC? Yeah, Grandpa. BASIC is a, yeah, yeah. It's a language, <laughs> uh, early language, go-to, 10, line 10. Uh, and so I did that stuff. Then I, I went to college. I studied computer science and accounting. I dropped out senior year, um, mostly because I was bored out of my mind. And I was working full time uh, because of that boredom, and then going to school full time, and I and I just stopped. Dropped out is kind of sounds like sounds elaborate. I just stopped going. I was just bored, and yeah. I was just so bored because I was spending most of my time in college in the library because the library was the only thing that had early internet access and Mosaic and Netscape access. Computer lab didn't have that, so I was spending all. I would just go to college and then spend eight hours in the library on the, on the early internet. So then I started building websites, worked for a consulting agency in New York, like a VAR, ISV, it yeah. sounds more glamorous, built websites, early, early, early websites for other people, joined an early startup uh, in 96, and, uh, and then we built that into three different companies, early internet companies, one my now wife ran and uh, got acquired by Oxygen Media, cable TV channel. The other one was called Bolt. It was kind of like early Facebook. We fought to go public. We never got went public. It got sold years later. It's the whole dot-com story. So we were building stuff like Bertelsmann. We built their first website, uh, which is the book, big yeah. German uh, uh, book company. Uh, we built all these early websites for people. And then we were using that money to fuel kind of doing uh, our own projects, yeah. right? And the whole idea of Concrete Media was we wanted to build community media properties, the very New York, yeah. uh, on the web, right? And so uh, we built Girls On, the network. Then we built our own internal thing called Bolt.com. Yeah. That became very big when I left. And so what we were doing was taking basically all social network stuff you see today, like there's been a predecessor. And what we were doing was looking at early AOL. Okay. So like everything that was in AOL native, yeah. right? So like instant messaging, email, groups, uh, forums, uh, publishing, kind of like content. They had all of this early stuff in there. We were taking parts of that and saying like, can we build them on the web? And so we did. We had our own email. We had our own instant messaging. We had our own groups. We created our own store. It was called Bolt Store. Uh, and uh, we had our own like catalog. We had millions of, of users using Bolt.com. All of these people uh, through dial-up, which was insane. Uh, so that, and they, on the average, they spent 56 minutes each day on Bolt, Jesus. on dial-up. Awesome. Nuts, right? So these uh, kids would basically design something. They would have contests. We would have a contest. They would design something. They would mail it to us. We had interns take, select the best one, then go to screen printer in New York City, uh, screen print these on t-shirts, and then yeah. we would sell those, right? Like awesome. the most ghetto stuff, but it's basically what you see today, but like it was super ghetto, super hands-on, yeah. but we were selling clothing and we were selling all this stuff that was generated by the community itself. Yeah. But what we figured out early on in Bolt was like we had um, all these writers who had come from, this is New York, like a bunch of great writers. We were writing content to attract people on Bolt. 
And immediately we found out like nobody gave a shit about the content. They just wanted to talk to each other, right? And so like then we built all of these like boards and this and that. And like American Idol, when American Idol first came out, was ran on Bolt. So you know, on TV they would just say go to Bolt.com/slash American Idol. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Two things. David's wife is clearly cooler than him, and we probably should have interviewed her instead. And the other thing is David's done a lot. That's right. He's one of these OGs of software where he's done all types of different stuff. But what I find most fascinating about his journey, and we didn't even get into the Lycos Labs part of the journey, Performable, or even some of the parts in HubSpot, is that everything that he talked about from I did this, then I did this, then I did this, then I did this, was basically in a reaction to some sort of customer stimuli. Can you go deeper on that? What do you what do you really mean exactly? Well, he mentioned that essentially they were recognizing different pieces of momentum and different shifts in the market. So taking aspects of AOL and kind of uh, serializing or parallelizing the development of those types of things into the market. Or people weren't really interested in the aspects of content, they were interested in the aspects of community. And essentially, it's it's less about him inventing the future or thinking, hey, here's this cool thing that I can go out and build. And it's more about recognizing what the future is and then having him go out and essentially shape it with the people that he worked with. And there, there was this shift that Performable and HubSpot basically recognized where people didn't want cold calls anymore. And this is what Brian Halligan talked about a couple of episodes ago, where essentially people wanted a more inbound approach to essentially getting their, getting their products or buying software or just buying things in general. And at Drift, DC and the crew are basically recognizing a very, very similar shift into messaging that Intercom and a whole host of other people have been in and are kind of entering in where there's this shift in communication and basically how people are, are buying products again. Right. I feel like this is kind of marketing speak, though. Oh, the world is changing. Buy our product. Sure. But there there is something there, though. Okay, let's get into DC's point about how the world is changing and how the current system is broken. Pay careful attention to his example about buying Salesforce or trying to buy Salesforce. And just how terrible that was. Awful. Everything has moved from supplier company control to customer demand control, like the centers of demand. So in that world, we get to choose. Everyone's a buyer now. Yeah. Like, you know, my progression was like, you know, when I first built software, only a purchasing PO, you know, purchasing agent or the CIO bought software. No one else brought software in a company. And then you move to kind of HubSpot era, Zendesk era. Now you're starting to see functional leaders buy software within a company, right? So it's a VP of sales can buy something because of SaaS. VP of marketing can buy their own stack. Boom, boom, everyone buys their stack. And now we're all over here, I think, which is like, well, any, everyone in your company buys something, right? Like you could probably look at all the stuff that you guys use in your company. It's like pretty much everyone, not yeah. just the functional leaders, are buying Too things. things. Too many yeah. things. Uh, yeah are buying things, whether they're services, software, whatever, they're, they're all buying stuff. And so it's not like, you know, this is the final, the implementation of the consumerization of IT that people have talked about for yeah. 15 years. Like it's finally happening now and everyone buys software. So now it's like, oh, we have to actually give a shit about like how they feel the experience is. And then at the same time, we think because of this shift that all the value now is in experience. 
because everything that we buy, whether it's your sneakers right there, there's yeah. no bowls, or, or this watch or sweatshirt or, or cup of coffee or whatever, are actually the only premiums that we pay are for experiences. And now it's like, yeah. okay, we got to build software differently because the sales wow. process, the marketing and sales and demand generation and conversion and revenue process like doesn't make any sense in this world, yeah. right? Because that was built in this old world where it's like company has all control. You can jump through these hoops. You're not a field in my CRM yet. Therefore, I can't talk to you. You have not been scored. You have not been passed off to a person and qualified. Uh, you haven't filled out the right form. You haven't got three emails that I think you should read these three emails before we'll talk to you. Like all of these kind of like crazy rules that we developed in this last generation yeah. that we've just come out of don't make sense anymore. Yeah. It's like insane. Because if I describe any of those things to a normal person and that normal person is a buyer now that's the big difference they they would just be like what are you talking about why don't you just have a conversation with me why don't you just conversational marketing yeah i just want to buy some i'm just trying to buy can yeah. i give you money please like we felt that way when i we tried to uh we started drift we tried to buy a license of of salesforce right the ultimate generation 1.0 and uh filled out you know a 15 field form oh had you know thirty five thousand dollars ready to, in our hands, burning a hole in our pocket, uh, you know, spent a month filling out forms, trying to get them, someone there to please respond to us. Yeah. That illustrates the issue that I'm talking about, which yeah. is like you as the consumer, you as the person who wants to buy something, have no understanding of what this company's qualification rule is before they decide you are yeah. worthy to talk to, sure. right? Because they have some set that obviously we were failing and, but I didn't know what they were. What yeah. did I have to exhibit? Did I have to go read some e magic ebook yeah. before they would actually talk to me or get six more emails before they said, okay, now your lead score is good. Now we'll talk to you. It's just insane. So yeah. $35,000 a month of our time, many emails and frustration did to try to get them. Did you actually get it? Or? Yeah, we actually did, yeah, actually yeah. did. And, and you finally, still converted. Yeah. That's what's broken. That's what's broken. Yeah. Monopoly. Yeah, man, that, that Salesforce example really gets me. I mean, you remember that pricing page teardown episode that we did about Salesforce and how just terrible that example was. And I'll put a link to the episode in the show notes below. It's amazing how hard it is to buy something that you just kind of know you want, especially online. Like people listening to this who are buying physical goods, it's probably really, really easy. But when you think about any kind of B2B type software and B2B, for those of you who don't know, is business to business. It's, it's kind of fascinating. But what's more interesting to me is this whole shift in how we buy in general, because that's not only affecting B2B software, it's affecting consumer software, it's affecting physical goods. And I'm just kind of curious into how and why that's happening. Wait, what do you mean? Well, think about it this way. In the world of physical goods, we've seen this huge shift over the past 200 plus years. I mean, probably thousands of years when you really think about it. And there's a lot of things that went into that shift. But let's think about buying a particular product. Back in the day, there was probably one store in a particular town that I could go to to get everything, right? It was the general store. And in a lot of ways, it was only in towns that might have been miles away from you actually where you were living. Then in the evolution of kind of the industrial revolution, consumerism, post-World War II, and even through the internet age, basically we were living in a world where it went from one store to maybe a couple of stores to a department store to a mail order catalog, which was actually pretty, pretty innovative if you really think about it. And then all of a sudden with Amazon and, and kind of the whole, you know, dearth of the 90s and early 2000s, you had tons of different types of ways that you could buy stuff online that would actually get physically delivered to you. 
And so this shift concept, the, the technological acts, aspect or the physical aspect of it, it's almost as if it's a lot of, hey, how do we shorten the distance between A and B? Right. And we're seeing that a lot now with the scooter companies like Bird and Lime <laughs> that are popping up. They're littering the streets. But basically the point of those is they're trying to exploit the last mile of transportation. Exactly. But then there's this whole element of kind of information asymmetry and preference where the internet gave us the ability to basically do our own research. So all of a sudden, we didn't have to trust salespeople as much anymore. Yeah, now salespeople can't lie to you. It's really become more of a relationship. Sure, but what's kind of interesting now, now, that you, now that you got me going, Benjamin, is that we probably saw heavy relationships back in the day because there just weren't as many kind of people out there for you to buy products from, right? And then with mass distribution, mass consumerization, whether you look at it in software or retail, whatever you kind of want to think about, you all of a sudden had this novelty of speed and this novelty of delivery where I didn't have to talk to a human being. And I essentially could, you know, just go out and buy that product on my own through a catalog or through the internet or whatever it ended up being. And then all of a sudden, that novelty started to wear off because there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of different types of catalogs, a lot of different types of physical delivery systems of this technology or of those products. And now relationship became more and more important again. A really good example to kind of think about is actually ATM machines. When ATM machines came about, everyone was really, really worried because they were like, oh no, there's, there's, everyone's going to get fired because robots are going to take over everything, right? And what ended up happening is that Actually, robots didn't take over. There were a heck of a lot more relationship managers in banking because all of a sudden now they had time to focus relationships on those things that required relationships and the novelty of speed could be used for just kind of general banking. And so it's just kind of fascinating that the, this, this relationship ebb and flow. Right. And we've talked about this before, how you think that automation is going to kill everything. It's going to get rid of all the jobs. But like you said, automation has actually evolved the industry. It's given people more jobs. And we see this cycle of products in places like entertainment and retail, but we've also seen it in B2B software. Exactly. So what I find fascinating is that timing is a pretty important factor here. Because a lot of these cycles almost seem inevitable. And when you think about DC's background starting kind of a precursor to Facebook and MySpace, that probably was a little bit too early, particularly because, you know, the dot-com bubble came and there just weren't enough people on the internet to help them survive that bubble. And you see Performable. Performable was probably in a really good position in the marketing space, but HubSpot was probably in a better position and had the right momentum. And so timing's probably not everything here, but it is probably pretty important. And when you think about the messaging space or the conversational marketing space, however we want to define it, Intercom is in a really interesting place because they've basically been in the market for longer and they validated a lot of things. Now Drift is coming. And so was Intercom too early? Are they a little bit too late? Is Drift going to be able to basically capitalize on the distance that Intercom has basically been able to close in the education in the market? It's, it's just a really, really fascinating, fascinating concept of timing. Well, I don't know, but I know that DC <laughs> knows. So let's let him tell us about how if he could have started Drift in the days of Performable and his early days at HubSpot, how that might have been a little bit different. And pay careful attention to when he talks about Intercom and the competition there. Could you have built Drift back then, you think? No, 100% not. 
100%. because of your knowledge or because of the market or both? Um, it's not, it's both, but more because of the market. Yeah, it's, drift is it's very important that we start that we started drift at exactly the time that we did, right? Because messaging and conversations and everything we we do. We're not we're not there right okay. yet. So at the time of Performa, it would have been weird, right? There were companies, Olark, yeah. Snap, Engage, Live Person, oh. all these people doing messaging, but it was still weird, and it was still like it's mostly for support, yeah. mechanical. Uh, if you told your average person like to go try to use that for selling, they would be like, "This is weird." Phone yeah, I go. To, it yeah. was still a phone thing, yeah. and even when I got to. HubSpot, right? That's 2011. The sales floor, I mean, you could not hear yourself think. By the time I left, it was pretty quiet because the world had changed at that point because they were mostly relying on email there. They would still have phone calls, but it had died down a right. lot. And now at Drift, we don't even have phones. Yeah. There's no phone system here. Totally. No I know, phones. I've tried to call this number. <laughs> Honestly. Just call me. We were Drift customer number one. Number one. And. There were some issues yeah, in the yeah. early days. Early days, not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. But I tried to call and it's like, go to our live chat. Yeah. The world has shifted to messaging, yeah, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Go. No, I get it. I get, I get it. it. Intercom. Yeah, what if about you're it? comfortable talking about it. Yeah, 100%. Like, is it, is there a comparison? I don't, I mean, like. The way I, I think about it is broadly, I don't think about competitors. That's my religion. I think about the customer. You know, I love the Bezos quote, if we stay close to the customer and we, we keep our competitors focused on us, then we will win. But you know, in terms of them, they've, you know, great company, I've known the founders. Yeah, I've known the founders before. Everything's been great. Um, you know, they asked me to invest in the seed round. Yeah. And I didn't end up investing. This was at the days of Performable um, because I, it was actually when we were getting acquired. So yeah. I was too busy. Uh, yeah. And I, so I never responded, but they're good dudes. Uh, they're building a great company. I just think we, we have radically different points of view. I think yeah. the overlap is messaging, but that's sure. like, so that's why the point of comparison that people have is just like, well, they have messaging, you have messaging. I'm like, yeah, but that's just like saying like 10 years ago, like, oh, uh, yeah, they have email. Yeah. Uh, wait, I don't understand, ProfitWell sends emails, but like this other thing sends emails. Yeah. Like, are you the same? It's just like, what? It's just yeah. a communication channel. There's so like, many, like you said, there's like support things. Zendesk has like a chat thing. Help Scout has yeah. like a sort of chat yeah, yeah. thing. Like, yeah, uh, we thought, yeah. you know, when we started with messaging that every SaaS product would have messaging at some point. Messaging was like the big shift that happened in the market, which is why I say Drift couldn't have been started before. The big shift was the world was now thought that messaging was normal in a way that wasn't true when Snap Engage Live Chart, all these yeah. tools and the hip chat even, yeah. right? So part of the, you know, for me, part of the argument is like Slack's amazing, they've done amazing things, I'm not taking any credit from them, but they're riding the momentum of the world shifting Absolutely. towards messaging, right? Because IRC existed, yeah. Campfire, all, all this things. All yeah. this stuff existed and they looked exactly yeah. the same and they've done some amazing things, but the thing that was different about them versus all those things was the world was now in the billions using messaging. They weren't in the billions using messaging when HipChat or any of these things came up, and the same thing with WhatsApp. Yeah. There were a lot of those tools before, right? Skype took five years to get to yeah. over 100 million users. So right? what you're saying is ideas are shit. Uh, <laughs> ideas are useful, what's more important is like a, ch a behavior change, right? Ideas are not enough to cause a behavior change. 
everything comes back to behavior. We've seen that in our previous episodes from Patty McCord and Brian Halligan talking about team. We'll link to those episodes in the show notes below. And now we're seeing it with David, where he talks about the customer. Yeah, and I think it's it's just the the whole concept of like being customer centric and having some sort of element of you know, competitor aspects influence some of that. Those aren't mutually exclusive concepts. But I also really, really enjoyed kind of his take on on messaging and kind of its cousin live chat, right? Because the shift is happening in the market. It's it's more of a question of kind of why here and, and why now. Yeah, and I'm starting to realize that it's not really a intercom versus drift market. It's it's more of a drift intercom, uh, go square, Zendesk, Zendesk, and HubSpot. All of those guys versus Salesforce. Right, Salesforce is the big behemoth Huge. in the market. But we're fighting basically these old habits. That's really the biggest competition here, and it's the old habits and not only how we've bought software, but also how we've sold software or, or just bought products and sold products back in the day um, up until now, essentially. Right. But tell me this. Can you brute force the training of a market? That's a really good question. I don't actually know. I think intuitively I would say no, because we're talking about customer behavior, human behavior. There is also a technological element of this. Like when you think about the shifts from radio to uh, television, or you think about the shift from kind of, you know, more mass transit or walking to more cars, there was a technological aspect of this because the technology existed that allowed the human behavior to change. But at the end of the day, cars didn't become prevalent because of advertising and because of training. They became prevalent because people now had the luxury of wanting to go from point A to point B. To give you another example, when you think about Steve Jobs and the Macintosh, absolutely you wanted a personal computer in every home, but it just wasn't ready for that yet. The behavior wasn't quite there yet. The behavior was kind of building up to that notion with the introduction of the iMac, which did really, really successfully, but it was decades after his initial try. I think that's right, but let's hear what David has to say, particularly about changing and transforming a market. Absolutely, and, and pay really careful attention to what he talks about how the measurement of success or how we measure success can actually be a huge barrier to the actual movement changing. Do you think you can train the market? It's tough. I think you're a little, like, so HubSpot. We did. They, I mean, you, the, the shift was happening, but, 100%. but there was a lot, and I would argue you're gonna have to do a lot of training here too. Yeah, there's a lot of transformation yeah. that needs to happen for sure. Um, do you think that's, is it, a little bit like different. How do you handle that? A little bit different. So like at HubSpot, the transformation was towards creating content and inbound marketing, all that stuff. But that shift was happening in the world, right? Yeah, Google, blogs, blogs yeah. AdWords, all this stuff, SEO, yeah. importance of SEO, all that stuff was happening. And then this was like, which is an amazing thing, capturing that momentum, turning it into a movement, giving it a name and then building on top of that. We're doing the same thing. Messaging is happening. We're not creating messaging. We're taking that momentum. We're rethinking something. We're saying like, uh, for us, I think we have transformation in the middle of a company, right? So right now, like a C-level person gets drift in like two minutes, like yourself. Uh, and then like um, a sales rep is just like, this is amazing. Yeah. This is freaking amazing. And then really the transformation. So they don't need convincing. The people that need convincing are the people who are tied to marketing qualified leads, uh, you know, product qualified leads, you know, what am I, lead, you know, who are getting measured today on leads 
And so, you know, we, and we have customers like this who may be like, they've turned a visitor into a high ACV customer, like boom, immediately, everyone's pumped, except the person in the middle, and they're saying like, how do I count this as an MQL? And we're like, they're not an MQL, they're a customer. Yeah. They're, a cus they're like a customer right now. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. But then how do I count this as an MQL? And, my, and it's just like, that's not how the world works. No, that's gone. So that's the part that we have to transform versus the incredible stuff that happened at HubSpot was that was a small group within the company that we were trying to transform yeah. the marketing person and they did and we did an amazing job there. But it wasn't like we had the C-level and the, and the revenue generation part of the company already using and saying like, yeah. I don't care about like how you count things or yeah. if it's SEO or not, I'm getting this thing. So we, I think we have that advantage. It still will be hard. All right, I'm a changed man now. It, it does <laughs> appear that you cannot change a market. Maybe, maybe with a little bit of money, but really it's more about the timing. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little semantic because there's a lot of chicken or the eggs here. There's like a, a kind of a, a tree of chickens and the eggs, if you will. To me, it's less about kind of training and transforming the market, and it's more of kind of sanding the edges down of a particular market in order to kind of capitalize on the shift of behavior or just the shift that is now possible or is already happening. And you think about Intercom, they're the ones who actually acted first but now there's this race to kind of define the standards and define the nomenclature of this world of messaging in the case of Drift Intercom at all to basically take on Salesforce, who's kind of in the incumbent behavior within the market. Exactly. And what I fear, and, and this is from an outside perspective, is that what it looks like is Intercom is more focused on technology and their adversary, Drift, is more focused on customer-centric things like preferences. Yeah, the, the technology has to work though, right? And and that's no small feat. I mean, these I, I know Intercom is sending billions of messages at this point. I'm sure Drift is, is sending a lot. And and so it's, it's kind of interesting though, because again, we're back to that chicken or the egg. The Technology has to work, and it's it's not an easy problem in the face of this behavioral change. Like most things, it's probably a balance of the two, right? And Drift can get a little bit more technologically powerful, at least from a product marketing perspective, and Intercom can get a little bit more conversational marketing focused in their marketing as well. And they're, they're both doing each of these things, but I think that what we're talking about in the market here is about recognizing that behavior of that customer experience, of that customer centricity, and, and basically capitalizing on it. Didn't they actually refactor the entire HubSpot code base because the market was moving too quickly? I mean, the product couldn't keep up. Yeah, they, they definitely did. And for those of you who don't know, refactor basically means kind of rewrite or redo all of the code. That seems like the most basic definition that you can get. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely is, but it's, it's impossibly hard. Uh, even if you're 10, 10 people or if you're 200 people or if you're thousands of people, it, it's extremely hard to rewrite an entire code base. Listen to David talk about refactoring when he took over HubSpot's product and pay careful attention to how this impacted the entire team. You guys came in and basically just... It was kind of nutty. I mean, there was some good stuff, but you kind of like rewrote a lot of it, right? We rewrote 100% of it. Okay, cool. Uh, so, I didn't want to like, yeah. I didn't know if that was okay to say. You know, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, so we came in. So Performa got acquired by HubSpot. We went in. It was an amazing kind of case study. If you're a product founder, it was just like insane because it was like, 
it really was a company that had hit escape velocity purely on largely on marketing and sales and the yeah. product was very weak they would say that in their own words at that point or non-existent in sure. some ways and so i had never seen that right because yeah. as a product yeah. founder you're like yeah. you got to start with the product once the product's perfected yeah. product market fit now yeah. we're going to go scale there was already scale we were probably uh getting close to 30 million in revenue when yeah. we got acquired something like that a high 20s low 30s something like that and um 200 people in the company got acquired and i came in and said like the product's totally broken, the team is broken, so we got rid of 95% of the engineering product and design team that was there, holy cow. went to zero, and then then rehired that team, and then it was like, holy crap, we gotta rebuild all of the software. So all of the software that existed, little by little, we just like deleted, 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 yeah. and you know, we were already at 5,000 customers, and we went to 17,000 or something yeah. like that when I was there, um, and then it ultimately went public, but like, we had to like, rewrite all this stuff, rebuild the entire team, um, and you know, do those two things at once. Like, yeah. it's impossible. I don't know how it happened. It happened though. It happened in three years. Uh, we did that. I feel like that, I don't, I can't think of any other successful refactoring. <laughs> yeah, I've never, like never. We did the things that other people didn't want to do in the refactoring and just like bloodbath, like out, everything out. You know, people, we're throwing all of this code out. We're, you know, what about, well, we got to keep Patrick around because Patrick knows how this stuff works. Nope, we're rewriting it. I don't care. Figure out how it works, you know. And so Elias, who's my co-founder at Drift and was our VP of engineering there, go in and try to figure out how the hell does this work. I think it's really good you have Elias. Yeah. I feel like you're the guy who's like, nope, it's happening. Yeah. And he's just like, <laughs> out, like, cancel, doing this to me again. Again. Like, I had I that like conversation with him this morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, because I've seen it. I've yeah. witnessed it. What was it kind of like managing not only that conversation with, especially non-engineers who have, they're like, everyone's gone and we yeah. don't know what's going on, mm -hmm. but even with the board, and I know Darmesh and um, Brian are like really like, you know, great at the culture stuff. And sure, they were super supportive. Uh, I'd say the, you know, the only reason that it worked was um, the board saw it coming. The board knew it had to happen more than the company knew it had to happen. So they could see that it, something was gonna happen if we didn't fix this. So they were 100% in, they were large part. Is it because there were signals like downtime and all churn. this other stuff happening? Okay, churn, churn because insane. of mechanical we, stuff, yeah. Because it didn't work, or it didn't yeah. do what it said, it didn't like, there was enough signals. Like, um, so the board, um, then the founders, Brian and Darmesh, bought into it, and uh, but it was painful, because they knew these people, and I was saying, I'm getting rid of all of them. And they're like, wait, but Patrick is good. He's smart, and it's just like, I know no, his wife, go. I know his kids, yeah, it's like, gotta uh. go. It's gotta go, it was just too far gone. And um, the, and then the other thing that was a positive was the re actually the rest of the organization, marketing and sales and services, were completely supportive of what we were doing in product because the engineering culture, the product, and what was happening had gone so far bad, yeah. right? Had gotten so far out there that they felt like they weren't being listened to, uh, product wasn't listening to sales, marketing, services, they weren't listening to customers, they had walled themselves off, they were off yeah. doing actually rewrites that never actually saw the light of day. And so they actually, when I did most of this stuff, I would get high-fived by salespeople in the hallway. Because they're like, yeah. I've they're been, like, finally. I've been whining about this for months Forever, or finally, yeah, right? Yeah. There was so much pent up, like finally, someone's doing yeah. something. If anything, it was more senior people were like, 
It's well, because it's a lot. Right? A lot. Yeah, and yeah. that's not the environment that they no. committed to when they came. No, 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 no. And so, yeah, I was known as uh, Don Corleone. Uh, by the, <laughs> For uh, more reasons than just this, let's be honest. But yeah, yeah. I learned this later. Awesome. Don't go in a room with him. I'm not coming out. Yeah. There's so, so many, many things I want to ask that kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so getting close to the customer. First, it seems like you have to notice the shift that is happening, where it's not just about the technology, but it's also about the customer preference. And then you have to make sure that your product stack is good enough that it doesn't overtake the company. Exactly. But I no longer think the technological aspect of this is the most important part. You don't. Well, it certainly is necessary and it needs to work, but... If the focus on the experience exists, then the technology doesn't matter. The technology basically disappears in the wake of the actual experience. Technology is just the delivery mechanism of the experience. Now, we talk about this at ProfitWell a lot, where essentially we want the technology to be shaped for the experience that we are trying to seek, which thereby is part of the behavior of the customer. That means less toggles, less switches, less you know little bells and whistles here. And I think a lot of us in the market, what we end up doing is we get really bougie about, oh, this technology is really cool. Oh, that was really, really hard to do. When in reality, building good product is more about that experience and more about, hey, the technology doesn't exist. When I go get an Uber or when I go do Postmates or when I go do anything kind of in this this new sharing economy, the, the beauty isn't in, oh my gosh, do you believe the logistics network behind me pushing this button? You know, it's got to be so amazing. It's, it's more about, no, the, the beauty is it's so simple. I push a button, I get a car. That's so beautiful because it's so focused on the experience. It's not focused on, oh, there's all these mechanics and all these different things. And you can even see this in the pricing because I no longer see like miles and things like that. I just see you push a button, you get a car, it costs $742. Okay, cool. I'm done, right? It's disappeared in the wake of that experience. And I think that you saw this with HubSpot. HubSpot basically focused on the experience and rode the wave of behaviors. And I'm sure they released features that didn't really do this. But you see this recognition of the shift and then the experience shaping that technology with a lot of these companies. I think Intercom is doing this. I think Drift is doing this. Basically, they're riding these waves of the behaviors by trying to shape the technology for the experience that customers and then the end customers of those customers actually want. Okay, so if I can break it down, it's really about recognizing that there's a shift that's going on and then capitalizing on that shift by using the technology that's available. Right, which is easy to say, right? But like most things we talk about in Protect the Hustle, it's impossibly difficult to get right. And in this case, I think from top to bottom, your team really needs to be on board. Right, and that's why when you're building a product, customer centricity and experience have to be the center of that. They have, they're so crucial. Basically, and I've said this so many times, you need to make sure that you have a team that shapes this technology to the experience and not the other way around. Yeah, and DC has a lot of experience with this. And let's let him talk about how where he first discovered this whole concept of customer centricity and how that also led to customer experience. Yeah, and make sure to pay careful attention to what he talks about in the context of the feedback loop, which is what we talked about actually on the last episode. We had learned that at Performable, so we were obsessed with that at Performable, this kind of customer-driven approach to building stuff, mostly out of necessity, right? We stumbled yeah. upon it. 
that's not the way I did things before. We stumbled upon it because we didn't have enough people on the team to do support. So one day I was like, we all need to do support. And so we all, need, we all were on the phone, email back then, uh, doing support, including every engineer who cried and whined and didn't want to do it. Oh, to customers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then I noticed I stumbled upon a discovery and that discovery was if the engineers heard things from customers directly, they took action. And if they heard it from Patrick or someone else on the team, they're like mm, a little bit more skeptical. Yeah. Uh, they weren't buying into it. They were making excuses. Patrick, you don't understand. We need to replatform in order to change that link to blue. Like it's complicated. But if five customers in a row were saying the same thing, they were just like, forget it. I'll just oh, fix it right now. Minutes. I'll just fix yeah, it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I discovered that because I was lobbying, I had been trying to get something done and there was pushback and then all of a sudden it was done. And so I asked, why did that happen? Oh, I talked to the three customers, I just fixed it. And I was like, holy shit. If they hear it directly, which then made sense, right? Cause then it was the, like, oh wait, this is just a feedback loop, yeah. right? We shortened the feedback loop. It was like feedback, you know, response, yeah. feedback, you know, learning. And it was just like, okay, can we build a system that's just around a feedback loop? Elias and I are both, entrepreneurial aka don't like being told what to do and so like we were like can we build an environment that's just built that way where it's yeah. just like things are as close to the customer in that case no one else has to tell you yeah. to do something and so i'd say perform was an experiment but we didn't know if it would scale we were just like 20 some odd people when we got acquired and then at hubspot we scaled the team to 200 yeah. and so like oh it actually could scale the structure right? of the team yeah the structure yeah, of the that's team that, yeah. that's built around the customer could yeah. scale you know our performal and at hubspot we always built for a persona sure. right we built for like uh, the marketer marketing mary or the marketer or this person or whatever and so yeah and so what you would do with a persona is like you would discover a persona you would have real versions of persona then you would learn everything about the persona and build software around that persona yeah. which was an improvement to the way that I had done things before, which is start with a technology, look for applications of the technology, and then build more and more technology and just look for applications. This was persona, and so we're building around and discovering. And then now what we, we're doing at Drift is totally different, which is like we're building for the end user customer experience because we think that's the most important thing. And so how do we build things around that end user customer experience that makes selling and marketing yeah. better? And if we can do that, then we will change the way the marketing and sales team actually works yeah. and the whole structure. But we're starting at a different perspective of where we're yeah. going. Experience is everything. And in order to understand that experience, you need to get closer and closer to that customer to understand their behaviors, to make sure that you're building the right experience for them. You can't train this, or at least it's extremely difficult to train this because the movement of behavior is so strong that it's extremely difficult to capture it, but you can shape it, you can transform it, you can sand those edges of that experience down by defining the terms and defining the standards of the behavior that's already happening. And you also need to recognize the shifts and the trends that are happening. I mean, timing, it's not just necessary, but it's the whole ball game. It's not easy, but capturing lightning in a bottle never is. And this is why you need your team moving in unison with one another, basically marching against the customer as the arbiter of success through the outcomes of them using, or in a lot of cases, not using your product. And if you focus too much on the technology, you might end up building something that's really, really cool, but that no one really ends up using and you end up failing. Or put another way, 
whoever gets closest to the customer ultimately wins. Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman, with help from Robert Byrne and Alyssa Chan. Written and produced by Patrick Campbell. We are giving away copies of Bernadette Giwa's book that popularized the notion of whoever gets closest to the customer wins. All you need to do is head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and leave a nice, healthy comment. Screenshot that and send it to patrick at profitwell.com, and we'll send you your much-deserved copy of the book. This week's episode is brought to you by Mixmax, powerful analytics automation and enhancements for your outbound communications. Mixmax.com.